Welcome to Office Talk, a fortnightly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with leading architects about their approach to business, marketing, and communications. I'm your host, Dave Sharp, an architectural marketing expert and director of Office Dave Sharp, a marketing practice offering specialized consultancy, marketing, and PR services tailored to meet the particular needs of architects. Visit officedavesharp.com to learn more or follow the practice on Instagram at officedavesharp. Joining me on the show today is Lauren Lee from Sasala, a Melbourne-based interior design practice known for their colourful, playful and livable approach to residential interiors. Lauren is also a design educator, running workshops, courses and an online community geared towards emerging interior designers. She also writes a monthly column for The Design Files and has just released her first book, The New French Look, with Thames and Hudson Australia. In this episode, Lauren and I discussed why she believes having diverse revenue streams can make studios more resilient during slowdowns in the residential construction market, and we looked behind the scenes at how she developed her different educational offerings. We looked at her journey as a design writer from five posts a week in the early days of blogging to becoming a monthly columnist for the design files that led to her new book, and how writing and putting ideas out there in public has helped Lauren to develop a unique point of view as a designer. We discussed Lauren's approach to making architectural photography more accessible and personal to the client, and balancing the trade-offs between images that resonate with potential clients and carefully styled images that are more easily published in magazines. Lauren shared why she believes that working with ultra-design-savvy clients, although often stated as a marketing goal for many architects and interior designers, can often make it harder for designers to take on the role of expert and educator in the design process and why that's so important. We discussed why branding, getting published, putting your ideas out there and showing excitement and passion for the possibilities of a project can be crucial for building trust with new clients. And finally, we talked about why developing a clear point of view as a designer and taking risks to challenge the status quo can help to attract like-minded clients and media exposure for small design studios. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please make sure to follow the podcast to hear a new conversation every second Wednesday. And if you have any marketing, brand or business questions you would like me and my guests to discuss in future episodes, please send them to info at officedavesharp.com. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lauren Lee from Sasala. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. It's not your first time on the podcast. You're one of a a very elite club of repeat (laughs) guests. I think it's probably you, Nick Brunson, and that's probably it. Maybe Warwick Mahaley back in the day as well. But I first brought you on the podcast probably like episode number four or something back in like... 2018, I think it was at the time. Oh my God. Well, I did not even know what a podcast was when I was on your podcast. So <laughs> that's how far <laughs> it goes back. Oh, so early. So no, early. No, right? um, I don't think any of the listeners had heard of a podcast, all, all 10 of them. They, uh, they had no idea, but it was awesome. <laughs> I remember coming to your studio on, I think, Chapel Street at the time. Yeah. I was new to Melbourne. Only been there for like a year at that point and coming down to your studio, it was a really cool experience. Oh, cool. But you've you've moved now, hey? Yeah, we had that studio for I think maybe three, three and a bit years or whatever. And this thing called COVID happened. <laughs> so it, it ended up being just an expensive space to store all of our stuff where we were working from home and, you know, homeschooling and all the rest. So that's when we decided to pack it up. So, but yeah, we've been working from home ever since and really haven't looked back. Yeah. And your home's really cool. If anyone wants to go look at it on your Instagram, it's <laughs> probably the sickest place in the world to work. Oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty cool. 2018, I think it was a really interesting time. I haven't listened to that previous episode, but it was at a point where I think you were just starting to kind of make the 
transition from normal interior design studio into starting to do some extra things. I think you had just started the apartment or something and we all just started doing some workshops or or events at your space. You just started branching out into this other stuff. And I'm so keen to kind of talk about how that's all evolved uh, and some of the different things that you've done. But take me back, take me back in time to (laughs) where you kind of started off with Sasala and then how it started to branch out into some of these other things that you do. All right. So when I met you at that point in time, we'd had another studio space before that. And I think we'd just been in that studio on Chapel Street for maybe six months or so. And so previous to that, we had interior design projects, renovations, kitchens, bathrooms, decoration, new builds, all of that. And I had um, four different people working with me, sort of contractors at the time. And I realized I'm not very good at managing people (laughs) and it's quite hard to do. And I was like, what other things can I do in my business to bring in revenue that maybe are outside of project work? So that's when we started thinking about running workshops in the studio and we did that for, well, right up until we couldn't basically. And I'd been teaching as well. I'd been teaching the interior design diploma. I'd done also a short course at CAE, the Centre of Adult Education. And I really loved it, even though like the the short course wasn't prestigious or even that cool. (laughs) Um, I got to talk about interior design and I really I didn't care. I was like, this is really fun. I really like it. So yeah, I did that. And then, so the workshops were, I guess, a natural progression from there. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) And so what were the workshops kind of themed on at that point? Or what was the, who was the kind of the target audience? It was clients and stuff, right? Like it it was more client facing than kind of industry or peer facing, right? Mm, Well, I guess the workshops that I did at CAE, I was working full-time at an architectural practice and I just did them on the weekends. They were for the homeowner or for somebody that wanted to study. But then the workshops that we did, you know, down the track at our own studio, at first I thought I would do a workshop for the homeowner, but actually what they were were for other interior designers or people that wanted to upskill. But basically they were for people that were second career interior designers that were about one to three to five or sometimes, you know, quite experienced into their business. And we offered like workshops in SketchUp or InDesign or Photoshop or how to get your work published, like different topics like that. So yeah, it was, it was a really cool way just to like all sit around the table, share our story. Like I got to meet so many cool people and we'd have lunch and it was like, yeah, it was really, really fun. Yeah. It's really nice. And other, you know, guests I've had on the show that have done more of those sorts of workshops, things and teaching things and consulting things, um, they love it. It's so much mm-hmm. fun. So different from the regular sort of grind of um, running the design practice and, and stuff like that. So is, was it something that you were kind of looking at and thinking, were you sort of torn in any way? Because in one sense, it's really enjoyable and it was kind of good business. But in the other sense, it kind of wasn't what you initially sort of set out to to do with your interior design practice? Like, did you ever sort of feel like, am I like just like, was there any like sense there of maybe a kind of conflict or, or something with that? Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess, um, you know, I worked really hard um, as an interior designer for 10 years before that, working at different architectural practice. And, and you sort of feel like there is a bit of a ladder that you can climb. Yeah. And I sort of stepped off that ladder and I wanted to pursue the things that I 
enjoyed doing. And it does, it goes against some of those <laughs> things. Like, as you say, I did feel torn. I'm like, if if I'm going to be a, if I'm holding these workshops and sort of working in that education field, does that somehow water down my interior design practice or mm. is it seen as um, as a prestigious kind of thing to do? And in the end, I was like, I don't care. I actually really enjoy it. I get to meet really cool people. I get to talk about interior design. So let's just see where this goes. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to hear maybe like how, because you decided to do that. I'm just trying to remember at the time you'd, you'd built like a pretty pretty big audience on Instagram and stuff like that. So, so in a sense, like, you know, in terms of actually getting people to sign up for the courses that you're offering and the sessions and things like that, you'd already kind of built the base, right? Even, even without, um, you know, needing, you weren't needing to like build up demand for these new things necessarily. You were kind of going to an audience you'd already built off the back of your interior design studio and saying, I'm now doing this. Would you be interested? And people were like, yeah, hell, hell yeah. We'd love to do that. So you weren't starting from scratch, right? Mm, it's, yeah. yeah. I actually, you know, a lot of the courses came about, the workshops came about because there were people out there asking me. <laughs> so I would go out for coffees with people. We'd go out and have coffees. And um, at that stage, my husband, Phil, was already working in the business. He'd be like, where are you going now? What? We've got all this work to do. I'm like, I'm just meeting someone for a quick coffee, you know, an hour and a half later. So I was like, all right, how can I kind of formalize this a little bit? And I had like through the teaching and even through CAE, like it's crazy. Some of my best clients came out through that workshop all those years ago, a client I'm literally still working with. So yeah, the people that you meet along the way. Also, I was using this software at the moment at that time called Ivy. And it was like mind blowing for interior designers because it was like the first software that we found that could help with the whole procurement process. But alongside that was this really cool community of interior designers, mostly based in America, but from all around the world. And they had this spirit of sharing that I was like, oh my God, this is so cool. Like we don't do that in Australia. Why don't we do that? So I guess I set out and I created like a Facebook group, you know, as we do, it's still ticking along. And yeah, so with the workshops, I didn't really have to push that hard to fill them. Like, yeah, they they kept me busy. We did a couple of a month. So yeah, it was fun. Yeah, yeah it's really great. And uh, one question I've got about it in terms of how you initially approached it, I'm just trying to put myself in the shoes of somebody who would be thinking about doing something like this. Pricing is always a difficult thing, right? And trying to work out what do you charge for stuff like this? And I think sometimes there's a tendency to underprice or translate your architecture or your interior design like hourly rate or something into a pricing structure for you know a workshop or a course or something like that and it ends up you know floating something out there and going yeah it's uh 15 people in my office for three hours and it's like 15 dollars each or something like <laughs> you know what i mean um so how did you think about establishing kind of the right price point because you mentioned that you know you still want it to be seen as a sort of a prestige thing you don't want it to be seen as kind of a lower end offering than kind of your interior services. So like, how did you think about pricing? Oh my gosh. Isn't that just the question <laughs> for all of it? <laughs> pricing. We talk about it a lot in terms of like, yeah, what other interior designers, you know, should charge. It just, it's a really good question. But yeah, for the workshops, I can't even remember, to be honest with you. I think it was probably looking at what other things were out there. You know, RMIT offer SketchUp classes. Well, mm. I'm not an RMIT. I'm not. I'm not a huge, big monster organization like that. Um, 
And what I offer is really different. You know, it's a really sit around the table, have lunch community. You know, it's not that that appeals to people more than an impersonal kind of, um, yeah, experience that you get from an RMIT. So I think what I did was I just looked at what other workshops were going on at the time. Also, it was awesome that, you know, those workshops could basically cover the month's rent. (laughs) So I think um, my SketchUp workshops, I think they were about $600 or something for a two-day workshop. So I think it run over like two consecutive Saturdays or two consecutive Sundays or something like that. We also did these three-day masterclasses or whatever we called them where people would come actually from interstate. I think that was a big thing. And we'd go out sourcing. We visited amazing design studios, like the generosity that we saw. It was so amazing. Um, Yeah, yeah, like a kind of open house Melbourne Sasala version of it, like going to places and opening (laughs) spots up and meeting designers. It's so cool. It's so cool. And we we literally got a mini bus and we we went and saw, um, you know, I know (laughs) we went down to, you know, Bayside and saw Grazia and Co. Like we got to see like a whole lot of these makers yeah, and other studios and stuff around the town. That is so cool. That is so much better than what RMIT would have been offering. (laughs) (laughs) Like I was when you were bringing up that comparison, I was like, oh, you should charge twice as much as them whatever they're charging or more because I mean you're you're that's a much more enjoyable and personal experience with oh. somebody that they feel personally connected with as well you know so fun they've been following you yeah should do that so again cool. actually they were really fun <laughs> <laughs> you bring it back because you go you know it's a lot of work and a lot of organization at the time particularly to do something that involves a minibus and you know <laughs> and sort of going around to different destinations but yeah I'm sure you look back on it and think that was a really fun thing to do yeah and the uh, connections yeah. that we all made yeah really cool yeah that's awesome just a thought that popped to mind sometimes when I've had guests or clients that have done these sorts of things before it's in some incidental sort of unexpected ways actually ended up turning into projects for the main practice anyway right like it might not even be the person that comes to the workshop but it's like their sister or their cousin or their co-worker who they went to work like raving about what a good experience they had and then that other person is like actually in the market for a two million dollar per annum renovation or something and then all of a sudden it all connects like did you ever find that there was unexpectedly like actual kind of larger um, bespoke projects that kind of came from this sort of stuff? Yeah. Even, you know, some of the designers that did my workshops and it goes both ways, you know, they might even have a a relative that has quite a big project and they sort of like think, oh, I don't really want to work with my relative and they've recommended me, which is really cool. (laughs) (laughs) And also um, the other way, you know, um, especially during COVID, we just got so many inquiries coming in. It was great to be able to sort of say to my community, hey, does anybody want to take up a job here? Does anybody want to take up this? Like, yeah. So, you know, with it, it's really nice, you know, in, in the design community, not everyone's a great fit, for, you know, that comes to, to me. So. No, it's interesting. Cause I think that choice about whether, cause you've, you found that there was a lot of demand on from your peers. So I'm imagining that you're a practice that might be considering doing something like this instinctively. You'd probably start by thinking, Oh, let's, let's make this a kind of client facing exercise and make this to homeowners and that sort of thing. But the opportunity of the real demand might actually be other people in the industry that want to get into your skill set. It might be a little bit harder to kind of get comfortable with that idea of spending time doing that just because it isn't directly client facing. So 
but but you you sort of had that rationale of just going who cares it's fun it's enjoyable and it fits kind of financially and it's what i want to do so let's just do what there's interest in and demand for right like at the end of the day well yeah and especially i guess if i think back to that cae you know center of adult education short course about interior design that i did i didn't even have a business then but i'm i'm talking about interior design i'm passionate about it i want to show you know share with them information and then it was a year later, two years later, or sometimes like even three or four years later when somebody came to that <laughs> workshop, they're now ready and they've always remembered that workshop and meeting me and they've reached out to me. And I don't even like, I don't have to sell myself as a, in a way because they kind of already have that trust there. So yeah, it's, 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 it, yeah, I didn't even think about it at the time, but it's, it has been one of those things I look back, I'm like, I've got three really great clients from doing those workshops back then. Yeah. So talking about the workshops, because you've had this like real portfolio of different things that you've done and different sort of like revenue streams for your practice and that sort of thing. So what are some of the other things that it kind of evolved into or that you've maybe experimented with or, or, or stuck with or found that have been like successful programs that you've kind of kept on running up to now? Well, you know, it's weird, yeah, talking about, you know, a workshop that I did so many years ago, not thinking that it would ever lead to a client. And it's sometimes it's those things that you do that you don't think about in terms of revenue that lead to something down the track. <laughs> so I guess one of them you could say was I wrote a blog as everybody else did in 2010 yeah. <laughs> um, that nobody really read, but apparently a few people did because, um, you know, writing a blog like that, I enjoyed it and I set a challenge for myself to write five a week. So I practically did it every day. Wow. Five yeah, I know. Week. I know. I used to do them like, you know, when I got home, I just really enjoyed it and I never thought anything would come of it. Um, and so I think it was about 2018 when the design files approached me asking to write for their um, interior design column every month. And that was a huge huge, big opportunity. And, you know, that's a blog that I followed since 2008 or whenever it started, like from right at the beginning. So that was a great opportunity. And then that has led to other things. I feel it's opened a lot of doors and I've just published a book. So that's been a really wonderful experience. So um, revenue stream, I'm yet to see that happening (laughs) for the book. Well, it's not even released yet, although we've already got pre-orders um, selling, which That's is really great. exciting. And other things we do. So, you know, those workshops, obviously during COVID, we weren't doing them in person. We had already been working on, when I say we, it's me, my husband, Phil, by the way, figuring out how to launch a digital course, some sort of digital offerings. So we quickly, I think it was in April, March, 2020, as the pandemic was, you know, happening, launched our SketchUp courses and they just did so well. Then I've done an AutoCAD online course and Photoshop and InDesign. Oh no, I haven't done Photoshop yet. That's on the list. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just doing them because people are like, can you teach me some stuff in Photoshop? I'm like, all right, let's create a course if that's what people want to know. So that's like something that you can purchase if you want, you know, it, it, it is quite passive. I'm not actually promoting them so much at the moment. And every now and then we get a sale come through. It's just a little extra cherry on top that's that cool. we don't. Yeah. I need to probably, um, yeah, work on creating some more fresh courses, I think, because, you know, software upgrades, whatever. Um, but what we've been doing for the past two years is a membership. So that's more in the interior design business kind of realm, I guess. 
And that's been fantastic. So during COVID, especially being able to every week meet up with a bunch of really cool interior designers around Australia, around the world, talk about what's going on, share information, have special guests come on like yourself, Dave, (laughs) you know, talking about different topics and just like figuring it out, like pricing, marketing, contracts. We're talking about insurance tomorrow. Maybe that's (laughs) something that you don't want to spend your afternoon working on. But when we come together as a group, we can just like nut it out together. So that has been fantastic. Um, Last month, we did a tutorial about AI for interior design. Again, it's because I'm hearing people talking about it. What is this? What, what, you know, is this, does, uh, does this mean creativity is over? And that's kind of like a a one-off sort of ticketed webinar or something like that. Or like a... Yeah, yeah, it was a, a one-off live um, tutorial, but, you know, people are accessing that recording because I think the word goes around and I'm seeing what people are creating with AI. It's so cool. We brought in a special guest, um, Leanne, to talk about chat GPT because it's not my expertise. And, you know, I'm not an expert at AI for interior design. Who is? It's only been out for a few months, <laughs> but I'm just sharing what I've learned and we can all share together like what we're doing and how we're using it and, you know, minds were blown. So, you know, we have every month a different topic that we're sort of like covering off. So, yeah, it's fun. It's very cool. No, it's really awesome. I think listeners will be picking up on some of quite a lot of the content that or the topics that you're kind of focusing on. They're quite technology and software related, which is probably quite unexpected and probably the last thing people would imagine the kind of course that I'd launch would be a Photoshop for architects course or something like that because you try to, I reckon it would be really easy to overcomplicate it and go, I need to do something way more complicated than than, than looking at software. And also there'd be this thought of like, oh, there must be like a thousand different Photoshop courses. Like how can I do my own Photoshop course or something? But mm-hmm. but obviously, you know, it's about the niche, isn't it? And being specific and having that trust and that brand that you've got and personalizing it for interior designers in a way that there's probably nobody substantive that's done or authoritative that's done that before. So yeah, that's really interesting that it's sort of software and technology and stuff. It, it surprises me too, Dave. <laughs> you're like, I never saw it coming. I never but, saw it but coming. But you started with SketchUp and it was so successful that you're like, well, what's next? AutoCAD, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And it just sort of went from there. And I guess like I'm a feminist, so I really love being able to teach other women how to use technology, how to use software. Because mm. if you go onto Discord and you have you had a go at Big Journey and stuff yet? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. You see Star Wars, you see robots you see all of this content there's so many guys on there and it's there's some real tacky stuff out there <laughs> Dave yeah. I'm sure you've seen yeah, yeah, the yeah, real yeah. it's it's a it's a very heavily male dominated area AI so I do have like an ulterior motive I really want to bring more women into that area of technology of AI you know of software and I mean I just know that when I was being taught software, I can't using an analogy about Star Wars like you lost me. I don't know what I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so um, you know, it's great to be able to talk about interior design, and we can talk about you know architecture, interior design. We can talk about things in a context that just makes sense for us. So yeah, I, I feel pretty passionate about yeah teaching other women, and we had a bunch of guys come to our um, AI tutorial too. That's awesome. Like anybody who wants to come along, obviously, but you know, I feel like in that software AI, it is quite male dominated and especially, 
yeah, AI scraping out, you know, the information on the internet, a lot of it is written by men. So it's good to, in our tiny little way, try just try to tip the scale a little bit. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and also just like you were really, really quick on it as well. Like I saw, I saw it pop up when you started talking about that and that you were doing that. I hadn't seen anybody else do that in the interior design space so far. You're just like straight on it, realizing that people were interested in it and yeah, just getting people together when it popped up. So it's just like, you got your finger on the pulse, which is like the seems like really important when you're thinking about doing this sort of stuff. You need to be picking topics that people are actually interested in, right? Otherwise, they're not going to turn up and buy tickets. It's interesting talking about kind of courses and things like that because they they do, and you you probably see this out there. You know, sometimes the idea of like education in an online setting it it, it sometimes tends to get like a bit of a bad bit of a bad rap about it, or it's maybe got like from back in the back in the day, there's probably like a little bit of a stigma attached around like kind of online teaching and coaching and stuff like that. Like, mm. like I, you know, I'm a consultant and and at various points, you know, I've done kind of consulting and coaching and that sort of thing, or you know, and it does have a little bit of a weird sort of taste to mean. it. Um, yeah, yeah, like it's just got a bit of a bad rap because I think people can pop up and be like, oh, I'm doing a course, and it's like, okay, you know, but what's your, you know, what's your background in that area, um, that kind of thing, but. But, you know, I, I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I sort of wish there was a bit more of it. And maybe the fact that, you know, as you scroll through Instagram now, you can't help but go past a masterclass ad going learn architecture from Frank Gehry. <laughs> you know, I don't know how many times I've seen that in my bloody feed. Does that start to maybe establish a bit of a culture of it's okay for people to teach, you know, because I think there's a sense of if I'm not doing it through a university, it doesn't have any street cred to it. And then I should stay away from it. But there's a lot of people with so much knowledge and they're not, they're not sharing it, let alone commercializing it, right? Well, I agree. And talking about university, I have taught at RMIT before. I've taught the diploma, the associate degree and all these things. So I see what they teach there. And there is a space for other ways to learn. And I know some things. I definitely don't know all of the things. So every, you know, every month or so we bring in experts, we bring in other people. I love learning from other people that people, the experts we've come, had come in, interior designers, um, we've had Paul Hecker come in. Oh, Paul was amazing. People still message me saying, I just watched Paul's you know, presentation and it was so, so good. We've had, you know, international people, Colin King, who's a, an amazing stylist, works for Arc Digest, Amber Lewis, um, huge interior designer. Um, but then we've had people talking about SEO and I can't tell you who my SEO person is because I don't want you all competing for <laughs> my Google <laughs> ranking, but she's amazing and I share all of that information with the guys in the group. Just all of the things like, you know, it's more, I think, you know, it's a platform that I bring people together. We share information. So yeah, that, that coaching thing, it kind of, I know what you're saying. It does have a bit of a weird reputation, but I think it's about sharing knowledge. And I think universities, I don't know, I think in the next 20 years, it's going to be different. I think they're going to look different. Yeah. Um, I think they still, they still offer um, value, but I, I don't, I don't think they are currently, I mean, my impression is that they don't really offer anything in terms of continuing education as a, as a professional, uh, like your professional development. I don't, I don't get the sense that people really go back to do more courses at RMIT or elsewhere after they've finished their, you know, their master's in architecture or they've got their interior design degree or whatever. So this is kind of a think about, you know, the professional development side of things and 
there's obviously the institutes that offer stuff and there's like Architeam that offers stuff and a few other sort of little organizations like that, like membership-based things. But if you have a lot more private architects and interior designers taking on the work of setting up something like this in their own little specialty, just gives you so many more options, doesn't it? And more flavors where it's not just like there's two or three ways you can continue to develop professionally. Like there's a lot more variety, which is a good thing. So it's awesome to say it. You know, I'm always interested in this kind of consulting model as well. When I see really good, good architects, good interior designers, like had YSG on the, uh, Yasmin from YSG on the podcast a, a while ago. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. And she was just, she went on the expert platform. I don't know if she's still on there, but was doing consultations with people just by the hour and just like that flexibility and a different way to do things. And she, I, I can't really remember exactly, but I think, I think she was coming at it from the same perspective you were, which was like, I enjoy it. It's something different. It's amazing how much of an impact you can have on somebody in just a short space of time. And like financially, it just is a little bit of diversification and it's good for the studio. How, how good's that? Yeah. And I think, you know, the expert has been such a game changer in terms of making consultations like elevating that yeah, sort of exactly that sort of way of yeah and yeah I, I think I really enjoy the variety as well so doing something a little bit different every day like that excites me I think the key thing is like elevate it, it like that thing about the courses and stuff like that it just depends on who's doing it how they're executing it like what's the level of kind of quality and 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 sort of yeah how well are they building a quality brand around it what's their reputation and you have to build that first and be seen as credible and as a as a premium sort of yeah person um but yeah i'm just thinking about the expert i wonder if um the design files or the local project or something will eventually diversify and launch their own expert platform because it's fun seeing these media platforms start to find new ways to have revenue if they're if the traditional media stuff is kind of not growing and, and not doing great it's it's kind of interesting to see them you know awards programs are, are one big kind of cash cow for the for the media but then there's these kind of directories like the 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 directory of all the good architects and interior designers is another way that you can commercialize it but i do sort of wonder about more on the education side and the sort of stuff that you're doing like how that could become part of some of these online media platforms have you ever had any, you know, discussions that we can talk no, about? No, <laughs> but people can come at me if they want to talk about that because, yeah, I mean, I think that's so interesting, like just a different way to think about the media. Yeah, even like, you know, using the expert as an example, um, you know, it was started by an interior designer, Jake Arnold. He's just um, designed Chrissy Teigen and John Legend's house. It looks amazing. It's on the international covers of Arc Digest. So he's he's a very high-end designer, but he's bought in all these incredible designers. And it's just so cool that anybody, you know, if you've got financial access or ability can access them. And then they've recently bought in an e-commerce model into that too. So the thing is, everything changes, everything evolves, like you need to be adaptable. So, you know, that's what I'm trying to do as well. I'm trying to adapt. People are saying they want to know about AI. Okay, well, let's bring in some experts. Let's figure it out. Let's learn together. Like what else can we do? Like I think, yeah, just hearing what people are saying, what do people want to learn about and bringing together people and making it happen. Who knows yeah. what could be down the track? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm interested in actually taking it back to or just like this broader concept of 
diversification as well and having more than one income stream or not being dependent on clients because as every single episode of the podcast is about at the moment how slow is residential in Australia and also for listeners in the UK I know Mm. it's slow for you there's inquiries have uh, pretty much dried up across the board and it's and it's a tough time and it's a stressful time and people are worried like you know we're not going to have enough projects in six months and all that sort of stuff or right now but I remember when in our kind of briefing call before our podcast, you were telling me about the about the nineties and the and or and the kind mm. of the the practice that you had worked with had during the recession survived because of diversification, and that left a real a real kind of message on you. Is that right? Just in terms of you, you kind of felt like in your DNA, you always had this sense of I don't just want to be singularly vulnerable on one particular market or one particular way I make money as a business. Yeah. So when I was a student, going back just a few years. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, one of the directors, I can't even remember exactly who it was, said that they had survived, you know, that recession that we had to have, the early 90s having diverse, um, you know, offerings in their sectors, different sectors. So they didn't just have residential, they had, you know, schools, you know, they had those government jobs, they had commercial police stations, random stuff like that, retail, like they were just diversing, uh, diversifying across different sectors. And I, I really remembered that for some reason. And I thought, oh, good. I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket because, you know, with my business, this is our family business. This is our soul, you know, this is this is it. You know, my husband works in the business. So, you know, having those diverse income streams just makes you feel a little bit safer in that. But, you know, we're not immune. Obviously, when clients are quiet, that means interior designers are quiet. That means they're not buying courses or joining a membership. So what we're working on now is how we can offer a more low ticket access to our membership so that we can have more people come in and, you know, learn something, you know, connect with each other um, just at a, a price point that's a bit more accessible. So, you know, you've got to adapt. I think it just comes back down to that again, isn't it? You've got to meet the market where they're at. What is it they're wanting to learn about? What can we do to help them with that? So, you know, we've we've played with a whole lot of different so-called passive income streams, um, you know, these digital offerings, digital courses, digital webinars, different tutorials. Some of them are random. I did one um, in the beginning of 2020 and I just sold one of those today. It's like, oh, okay, that's that's interesting. You know, so they, they do kind of sometimes tick along. Um, we've played with affiliate links as well. You know, you're not going to make a living off that, but it's just a little thing to, to, you know, tick along. We've done a few brand collaborations as well. So, um, and that's mostly like with the design files. Yeah, just uh, just being open to other things, I guess. And, you know, if it sounds fun, it's like, yeah, all right, let's, let's go, let's try that. You know, it's so weird when I think about, you know, talking to you about this CAE course that I did back 10 years ago, thinking, oh my gosh, I should do that again. So with the release of this book, it's called The French New Look. It's it's a more accessible, and we analyze the spaces. What makes those French style look so chic? Like what's that je ne sais quoi, so cheesy. There's a few cheesy French cliches in there. (laughs) Like what is it? How can I help the homeowner like bring that into their home? And I want to develop a course for that as well. So talking, I've been talking to interior designers about you know, how to help them in their work, in their business. But I want to get back to speaking to the homeowner again and just make the 
the most of their home and, and give them tips, give them sourcing, like, yeah, figure out like how they can just live in their home, like the best way possible. And I think, you know, for other architects and interior designers out there, you know, how can you meet your clients where they're at? You know, we, we really want to talk to our ideal client. You know, we, we wait for that ideal client and I love that. I'm on board with that. But sometimes our ideal client's not buying. So what, what can we do? And I think, yeah, going back to that example that you made about the expert, having elevated the consultation model, an online consultation, like it's just really smart. Maybe you and I, Dave, we should start one up for Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. I don't know where you get the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll put that on my list for 2027 or something. No, but that's, but that's a really, really good point. I, I'm just interested, I guess, moving a little bit into actually thinking a little bit about the, the kind of the homeowner and you're talking about the, um, the, the kind of wanting to kind of reconnect with that a little bit. And, and, and I feel like you've got a good kind of rebellious approach to interiors as well, in a sense, <laughs> because you're kind of very, very, very pro, like a very livability and very sort of, um, you know, real spaces for real people lived in, in real ways kind of person. Mm-hmm. Like that is yeah. your agenda. You're passionate about it. And you're like, you know what, this pretentious, interior design thing we're not obviously no no specific names of course but like things are a bit cold and kind of like a little too serious or a little too like it's not that human element so yeah just like i'm interested just briefly in talking about that exploring that a little bit it's this french lifestyle hey it's these they know how to live (laughs) yeah yeah i i think you know my first book being about french interior design and i really had the best time diving right into like what makes those spaces so special. Yeah, with the French spaces, they are lived in. You know, they're not styled to an inch of their life that is um, it's so impersonal. Like there is always like something in there that's a little quirky. You know, the way that they live with art, it's so different. Like I think for us, we would have a mantelpiece and put a piece of art above that and be like, that's it. But for them, you just see art in everyday life. Like there's a little painting in the kitchen. There is like a little sculpture or something in the entry. Like it's just in their life, in their lifestyle. And and I just found that so inspiring. Like the spaces just look lived in. There's signs of personality. There's signs of life. There's history. There's different stories, like personalities that you see in the spaces. Um, And I just found that really inspiring. And I think with my kind of interiors, I really want to create homes for people. And I know that's probably not cool. Um, but I, (laughs) uh, you know what I mean? Like how uncool of you, Lauren? I am, I am not cool. And I know that and that's okay. (laughs) But I think that, yeah, I think there is, you know, a bit of a, a style at the moment that is a little bit cold, that is very overly styled and people will have these things arranged by their designer on their shelf that stay there for five years. Like they don't get moved. They were something that's chosen that looks cool, but it has no meaning in it. So I think that's what I really like. So, you know, sometimes when I shoot my projects, I will want to bring in those things that have meaning to the client. So I, I've kind of, I've, I do find that a bit of push and pull 
because I know that if I want to get my projects published, I have to take out all of that stuff that belongs to the client. Mm, mm. And I've done that before. I've wanted to put more of those client personality in there and I've left them in the photo shoot and I love it because for me, I know the client, I know that has that meaning to them, but when I've pitched it to media, they haven't picked it up as much, but they're the projects on my website that clients talk about. They're like, I saw that you had that project and it had the, that had that whatever it was that belonged to the client, you know, that Chinese little sculpture on the desk or something. So can you incorporate the things that I own into my project? I'm like, yes, that's what I love doing. Like when I walk through the client's house and I see, it sounds really, I don't know, a bit lame, I guess, but like we've designed little nooks for the kids' school bags to go in and they're all filled with the kids' stuff. Or we've got like the bookshelf there and it's got all the clients' books on it, you know, of what they read, not the coffee table books that look good in the photo. Like, I don't know, it's it's a really, really beautiful 40 kilo thing. Tom Ford book on the coffee table or oh whatever. Oh my God, does anybody <laughs> actually know if there's anything on those pages inside the book? Has anyone ever opened that book? <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it's a, it is a funny thing, isn't it? And I guess that's why I was yeah drawn to those French interiors because they do have books on the shelves that are arranged in a way that is not perfect. Like it's like someone's just got up and walked out of that room. So I find that really that draws me in. I find that really interesting. Yeah, yeah. listeners will probably realise that we tend to have guests on this podcast that are sort of at both ends of the spectrum. At in a lot of cases, like we'll have the we'll have the interior designer or the architect who is like the total opposite and they, they could not care less about <laughs> showing the client in the space. Oh, it's I, about I like crafting I... the perfect image. And I, I do say I do love it. I do love crafting the perfect image. But, it's, and, you know, but at the same time, I also love what you're talking about. And I, I think like a lot of the listeners do too. In fact, probably most of them. But it's just like there's different points of view, isn't there, in terms of like how you create images, what you're trying to go for, what you're, what's like authentic to your you know, to your brand and not trying to just like be something that you're not because mm. it's popular. And that can be, that can be hard, right? Because sometimes, you know, you do go like, oh, I really do want to like get in the magazines and stuff. So let, even though I kind of don't believe in that really sort of minimal stripped back kind of look, I kind of just have to do it anyway. Right. Mm, or whatever, like, whatever the look is, you know, it is a push and pull. And yeah, I think it is trying to figure out like who you are as a designer what you want to say and sometimes what you don't want to say as well. Like I thought that that's what I wanted. I thought I wanted to do these, you know, interiors for these incredible huge museum sort of houses <laughs> until I sort of got a few of those kind of inquiries coming through and it was a, a five-bedroom house for two people and everything was on show. And I was like, actually, I love that. That looks so beautiful don't get me wrong, but I don't find that personally as fulfilling. Um, so yeah, I, I like to, you know, bring in the clients, you know, pieces and bring their personality into the space. Like I find that it feels good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's like, um, there's an assumption that a lot, of, I think a lot of designers think this, I want to work with like top shelf clients, like really good clients with really good budgets that are like super design savvy, that really are going to value design. Who are those people? They're people that like untouchable, minimal, like elevate. Like they're the they're the Vogue kind of cover people. They're like the Anna Wintour characters that are like hectic, but that's who, <laughs> that's the client that enables me to do amazing work. Whereas like if I do like the livability with like this, with the, the books and the Chinese sculpture and the kid's school <laughs> bag in the nook, I'm going to get like 
boring mum and dad clients that like don't have budget and like don't care about design and don't know, you know, anything Mm. about it. And they're just going to be like, I need a set of plans done tomorrow kind of thing. Like there's just this sort of, I guess, like prejudices, I suppose, about what the client segments are. But it's sort of like there's really no connection between whether somebody is like into, you know, livable, colourful, slightly messy spaces and are also design savvy and have shitloads of money, right? (laughs) Not that that's what it's about, but. It is funny. Yeah. I feel like there is different clients for everybody. And plus you can meet halfway. You know, we've had some amazing clients that have been the best people to work with. um, And they have been some of the most expensive properties we've ever worked on. And they are not minimalists. You know, they have lived a life. They're empty nesters. They have objects that have meaning for them. you know, I think there's always, there's also a way to express that in a chic, sophisticated way. Yeah. So basically you're just saying that you kind of agreeing with me in a way that it's just like, there is, there isn't a clear cut connection between whether you're focusing more on livability or whether it's that like really aesthetic kind of mm-hmm. like just aesthetic exercise, like between whether it's a client that you ultimately end up wanting to work with or that has the means or has the has the savvy to be a great client or will be a great client. Like it's more of just people could be any style, bring any sort of lifestyle to the table and it's just more, it's really more about their personality as a client, isn't it, more than well, anything. And it's got I nothing to so. do with like what their house looks like or you know, what I they're think going it's still for. connected though because like if somebody is a, a playful, fun person that, you know, you can just click with that, you know, will light up a room, have a conversation with anyone, sometimes their space reflects that. Or on the other side, if somebody's like quite a serious person, like a really like um, somber personality or something, maybe their space wants to reflect that. So I want to attract people that are really great people that are fun clients to work with that don't take it so seriously. It's not life or death. We're not like saving lives here, but I think we can change lives as well. But I want to work with great people. And we've been so lucky. The clients that we work with are the best clients in the world. And I'm so, so grateful for that. And it sounds maybe a bit cheesy, but you know, it's such an honor to design a home for somebody. It's like their biggest asset probably. And, you know, you're given that responsibility and you want to make it the best to suit them. Like it's not really about suiting me because I don't live there. I want to make it the best for them. And, you know, some of my clients, they they appreciate good design, but they don't know who the best designers are. And that's actually great for me because I can be the expert about design. I sort of thought I wanted to work with clients that were a bit more design savvy um, you know, the Anna Wintour's are fashionable designers and my clients are very fashionable, don't get me wrong. But sometimes, you know, if they're not the expert of that, that that's great because I don't, I personally don't want to work with a, a, a client that's trying to tell me what they want and they've found this and they've found that. I get to be the one to say, this is this amazing sofa designed by Patricia Urquiola. She's like an icon of our time. And I get to explain that and be excited about that. And they come on board and it's really great. So, yeah, I think there's just different clients for everyone. And I think the more that you find your own voice, the more you realize who your ideal client is. Yeah, I work with a a bunch in, you know, my consulting work. I work with studios that are doing like amazing award-winning work and go and interview their clients, the homeowners and stuff, and they are not design savvy at all. (laughs) (laughs) Like the homeowner, they have no idea. Like, and they, they found my client, even though like 
they could have found them in magazines or they could have found them in awards or whatever. It's like, oh, we just Googled or like we went on, you know, whatever website and it said like top 10 architects in this area and we looked at their websites and it's just like, seriously. They don't even (laughs) realise how amazing their house is. I know. Well, the thing is I think through the process they do because it's what you're talking about. They start to, the part of the enjoyable part of the process is like talking about it and they learn more about design and they start looking at stuff and they visit the architects, other projects. And it starts to, they start to get a bit of a kind of a, it's a long process as well. I mean, two, three years and you know, throughout that, they're bloody experts by the end of it. If they were going to come back and do it again, they would probably be able to do the whole thing blindfolded. But like, yeah, it's, um, it is interesting that I, I think oftentimes um, I'm approached with briefs that say I'm really looking for that sort of design savvy client, but I, I don't know if people necessarily, they think they want that, but maybe they don't really want that. <laughs> or maybe yeah. what they think that gets them is not what it actually gets them. Yep. Yep. I guess, um, you know, you, if you're a really detail oriented person, then you probably want a client that, that isn't that so that you can feel that need for them. But, you know, if you've got a client mm. that's a really design savvy client and you're also, you know, obviously know all about design, then it's a bit of a, it can be a bit of a tension there because you're sort of. A bit of a rivalry there. <laughs> rivalry. <laughs> but it is fun when you can, you know, bring a client on that journey and, you know, as cliche as that sound, but they, you can sort of start to tell that story. And it's really funny when they are saying your words back to them, how you explained it. And you're like, oh, you really got that. You really liked that. That's yeah, cool. absolutely. One, one thing I think a lot of designers really want to avoid, architects, interior designers, is the client that thinks they're the architect or the interior designer. They've already decided everything they want. And the way that they view the relationship is like, oh, I'm just looking for a pair of hands that can kind of execute my ideas or draw my thing up for me or whatever. Like that is the That's kind of the nightmare that I think a lot of people are sort of yeah. avoiding. And I don't know if the design savvy client goal is something to do with that. But I think that's what you would accidentally end up getting if your client was really, really design savvy, because what does that mean? It's kind of, I forget what that effect is called, where you know a little bit about something and you think you're an expert. Uh, there's, oh. a, there's a word for it, but um, but that's that's kind of risky, right? Whereas if you go like, you know what, I'm, I'm actually kind of maybe looking for the client that's not as design savvy, where then I'm, as you said, I'm more of the, they see my expertise more clearly as a contrast to their own. Mm. Maybe there's a value there, but you still need then that trust, right? Which is the part that I think is still key, isn't it? Like you need somebody that's willing to trust a designer, trust an architect as a professional in terms of building that trust in that relationship with the client that maybe does need to be guided a bit more. For you, is that based on really kind of how how much they've sort of seen your stuff before or what, what do you sort of think kind of is helpful for building trust in that sort of situation with a new client? Mm, that's a good question. I think that Asking a client to trust you is not really a reasonable request, <laughs> you know, straight off <laughs> like the bat. Like literally asking if, them? <laughs> yeah, if you say, oh, just trust me on that that white carpet for your house with three toddlers, like, you know, say just trust me to look great. I don't think that is a fair request to ask a client. I think you've got to earn that trust. But how you do that, I don't know. There's so many ways. I think branding can be the first impression. So you want to look professional it's been interesting when I became the the writer for the interior design column for the design files, I had clients midway through that and they actually almost changed a little of the way that they listened to me because having that authority. So if you can get your work published, talk about the things that you are passionate about, the, you know, how do you, 
believe we should live or, you know, what, what really can you just talk about? Like put your ideas out there. And that doesn't mean that everyone's going to agree with it. So you kind of need to be prepared that not everyone's going to agree and that's okay. Branding, get your work out there and maybe get published. Yeah. Talk about the things that you know, be excited about it as well. So, you know, if you're meeting a client, like just listen to them don't tell them all about your design process and stuff on that first first phone call because I don't even care about that yet. So I just really want to listen to them and like, what is it? Where are they getting stuck basically? And if you can figure that out and say that back to them, they're like, oh, she actually listened to me. <laughs> so you don't want to be like listing off all the scope of work or listing off your design process. It's like so boring. You know, <laughs> we talk about that, of that stuff I've later. been so proud of my process oh. recently. I've been getting a bit guilty of that. Well, <laughs> I mean, I did that as well, but I, I figured out <laughs> that if you listen to them, you know, in those first few interactions, like they just really like that. And people like talking about their project. They like talking about what they're doing and, you know, be excited for that and sort of more talk about the outcome in the mm. beginning first. So talk about the outcome. What do you mean? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, they want to do a kitchen renovation. Okay. Well, I'm not going to be like, all right, well, we need to choose bench top. We need to choose a, this, we Mm. need to do a Mm. layout. Like we're not talking about the actual nuts and bolts yet. We're talking about, imagine if you had a kitchen where all your family could gather around and you know, this is where you can cook whilst they're sitting there doing their homework. Or imagine if you had a banquet seat here so that when you're sitting here, you can sit right out and see that view. Imagine how cozy that would be, like you and your partner, a little snug corner here, and we can have a bookshelf there for you. So you can, you know, the kids can be over here and you can do that. So you're talking about the outcome and like how they're going to live. Like that's really exciting for clients. So I think that probably helps build the trust as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Getting getting kind of the imagination going is a really is a really exciting thing, isn't it? Yeah. No, that's awesome. I'm interested in talking a little bit about the the book actually because it kind of comes back to what we we're talking about at the beginning where it's sort of you doing something different, something new, exploring like a new kind of facet of the business and the book is a really interesting one. And so, yeah, just walk me through this process from from soup to nuts, like what's a book deal, <laughs> Laura? Like how, do, how does one go? I mean, I could, I think listeners and I get how this kind of was a gradual sort of natural sort of next step from like writing for so much time for the design files and having your own kind of audience and everything. So it sort of seems like a really beautiful fit to then think about a book. But yeah, talk us through the, the journey with that. Oh my God. <laughs> so interesting. Thank you for asking. <laughs> um, because yeah, my book's coming out, so it's super exciting. Um, you know what? It's so weird. It's like writing a book. I was kind of like afraid to even put that on my bucket list, you know? Like I didn't really think that that was something that I could ever achieve or but I guess if it's something that you want to do, I guess you just start writing. So as I said, I I wrote a blog I used to love doing that. I like books and reading about design as much as doing design. And basically, you know, Lucy from the design files, like she's my hero. Like I've told her that before. (laughs) I think she's great. I love the design files. So I I guess I'm pretty firmly on that camp of, you know, that livability in terms of, you know, how they represent, you know, spaces and, you know, double into that lifestyle as well. So, you know, if it wasn't for that column, I don't think I would have 
you know, been offered to write a book for Thames and Hudson. So, you know, I don't know if I can say like this is like how how you, how you do it or whatever. Yeah, but, like <laughs> how yeah. to get your own Thames and Hudson book <laughs> yeah. from scratch. You know, Three easy steps. If anyone even <laughs> wants to do that, I mean, yeah, it's if, if it's something you want to do. But um, I guess, yeah, putting your stuff out there and, yeah, Thames and Hudson just called me, just called me one day, really cool woman, woman that works there, um, Paulina, She's had some beautiful books that she has, I guess, produced. She's, I have to check what her actual title is, but I think that, you know, her role is like, what are people wanting to read? What are the next series of books we should do? So, you know, this book, the French, the new French look, that's my first book. I've pretty much turned in the manuscript and all of the images and everything's done for the next book, which is about beach houses. Yeah. So we want to do like a style series together and I've learned so much throughout this process. I didn't know anything about writing a book. An author that I um, reached out to in the beginning, her name's Fiona Kalaki. I don't know if you're familiar with my daily business. She's amazing. She very kindly jumped on a Zoom with me and I was imagining I would be Kerry Bradshaw sitting at the keyboard at my window, just typing away, you know, I got to thinking, but it was not like that. I started with a spreadsheet, Dave. It was depressing. <laughs> so I had to create this monstrous spreadsheet. It's so big, my computer can hardly open it. But basically just listing out all the images, getting a lawyer to, you know, fill out all of this stuff so we could get all the copyright and all of this kind of back-end stuff, which has been really time-consuming. So um, actually writing the book has been such a pleasure, but it's been all of the admin and everything like that, which has been a bit unexpected. I, I don't know. Um, it's just part of the process. But yeah, here we are. So it's not going to be, I don't think we're going to be able to give uh, anybody else advice on how to start a book, uh, you know, to get this process happening for themselves. But it's something to, I think like there's a bigger lesson there about maybe finding some areas that you're kind of passionate about doing some writing and publishing and, and starting to maybe develop a bit of a point of view on some aspect of your work, I guess. I mean, it's, it's, it's not very often we see, we see practices doing that sort of thing. It's quite unique. I thought when Facebook brought out, brought out threads a couple of weeks ago, I thought that was going to be the beginning of a new era of like all these architects I follow on Instagram suddenly starting to um, start having all these point of view uh, spicy conversations about design <laughs> and architecture, and unfortunately, it didn't. It didn't eventuate. Yeah, I haven't opened um, that up but... for a while. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, we'll all be back there soon. I feel like I'm still there, but um, developing a point of view and and something forming a design point of view is it's a lot harder than it sounds, isn't it? Well, it is because you don't want to say no. You don't want to say no to any clients. But I think that in order for some clients to go, yes, like she's my person, you do have to say no to some other kind of aesthetics, I guess, and yeah, figure it out. That's that's the key, isn't it? It's not just mm. about saying like, what am I, you know, it's about what am I for? What am I into? But sometimes it's also, you kind of have to say a little bit, what am I against as well? Mm. Or what am I not for? Mm. And that, that has a sort of negativity and danger to it that people really do want to avoid. But I think it's an important or critical part of having a point of view. Sometimes it is saying, I'm going to be in opposition to this thing over there or have like a slightly contrarian kind of take on certain things that might be, you know, popular or sacred cows or whatever in the design space. Like sometimes going, I'm an alternative with a different point of view is like critical to kind of having to attracting people towards that point of view, right? I think so. Yeah. And it does take a while to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I don't want to say any more. 
But yeah, it is. And I think I also appreciate a whole lot of different styles of design and architecture. So I like, I basically, I like everything. <laughs> so, um, you know, I've, I can really love and appreciate everything, but at the same time, I think underlying it's that sense of livability that I like and seeing that personality somehow expressed in the space. Like that's what I, I find that really interesting. And yeah, I guess, you know, Melbourne and, you know, Australia, we can be a little bit in our little bubble. And I mean, we are totally up there on the world stage in terms of, oh my gosh, the quality of work that you see, it's amazing. Uh, But there is a whole world outside of that too, you know, especially when it comes to interior design. And, you know, we're talking about the expert earlier, this, um, you know, Jake Arnold, it's, it's layered, it's textured, there's soft furnishings, there's pattern. You know, I think in Australia, we do get a little scared of color and pattern and we do play it quite safe in that respect. So you do see a lot of white walls, a lot of white kitchens with a marble. Like you do start to see a, I'm not going to use the word cookie cutter, but there I did just say Mm, it. mm, 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 (laughs) You know, you mm. do see a bit of repetition in that. And so, you know, looking, looking abroad, you know, looking to what they're doing, you know, in California, what they're doing in New York, you know, Paris and like all around the world. It's so exciting. And there's just to see how other people live. So yeah, there's a lot of different ways to express like how you are as a person through your space. So yeah. And I think, you know, there is a feeling of safety that you get when you have the white walls and the marble, like it's, it's belonging to that's safe. That's safe. That's going to look good. Like I feel comfortable with that, but going a bit beyond that, it is risky. It is, there is that element of like, oh gosh, like this is a bit different. What, how's that going to look? And I think that's, that's where I find that really exciting as well. When I can see, oh, there's a bit of a risk. I mean, YSG is a great example of that. You know, those spaces, there is an element of risk. I think one of her her projects is a purple ceiling. I'm like, that's just so cool. It's it not good. It's not for everyone. Fantastic, but it is for those people. They want something different. They want something that n- none of the Joneses have. Like it's so original. And there's a bit of, you know, nothing. I guess is a hundred percent original, but there is creativity and there's thought and there's, you know, bringing the client into it. That's really exciting. I mean, you know, that project by YSG, Hamish Blake and Zoe Foster's house, I mean, that's been published widely. And, you know, you do see, you know, really bold colours by Vogue Living. Like at the moment, it's a Milan issue or something. It's a saturated colour on the front. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's eye-catching. It's exciting. I want to look at it. I want to find out more. Um, you know, L Decorations got um, Studio Doherty's project on the cover and, you know, they use colour really, you know, expressively and it's exciting and they just did a, um, a Laminex campaign and it's really cool, like finishes yeah, in ways cool. that you've never seen before. Yeah. So I think that sometimes we think, you know, to attract a client that's high-end, that's serious and we're really serious and all of this, like we have to be very like, paired back, very Mm. minimalist, very unapproachable. But no, I think there's clients out there that want something one of a kind, want something expressive, and they want to work with a designer and have that wonderful experience of, yeah, creating a home for themselves together. So yeah, I think there's, you know, maybe a perception that high-end clients want something really serious, but I'm like, well, actually, 
high-end clients, what does that mean? Like, do they know they, they, they might want something playful as well? I love it. Lauren, I think we should finish up there. We've, <laughs> we've used up all of our podcast time. I, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Can we, can we just do one last detailed plug of your book um, in terms of where people will be able to get that, given that this episode will be coming out at the end of August so it will be on sale at this point, like I can get it or do I pre-order it? What do I, what do I do? Oh, thank you for that. Um, so the, it comes out on the 29th of August. Oh, you can perfect find timing. It at, Literally probably yesterday, listeners. hundred percent. So um, you can order it on my website. You can order it on Amazon. You can, at the moment, yeah, we're taking pre-orders. I think they've gone pretty well actually from what I'm hearing. So you can order it on Amazon, um, but I like to, you know, go to my little bookshop down the, down the street like a little smaller business but that's just my personal preference I'm not going to stop you <laughs> buying from Amazon if that's what you want to do but um yeah so um thank you so much Dave for the opportunity to talk with you it's super fun <laughs> and my pleasure thank you so much and we'll have to do it again in uh 2029 or whenever our <laughs> exactly. whatever our next interval is on this podcast so thanks Laura. <laughs> That was my conversation with Lauren Lee from Sasala. If you'd like to learn more about Sasala, you can visit their website at sasala.com.au or follow them on Instagram at sasala underscore interior underscore design. Lauren's new book, The New French Look with Thames and Hudson is available on sale right now from online retailers and your local independent bookstore. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time.